You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It won't be any good for the Reverend to read ministerial books, or any book for that matter. What will he learn of me there? Only the things other men think important about me. When the Reverend saw my name and birth in the church book, did he see only the writing and understand only the date? Or did he see the fog of that day and hear the ravens cawing at the smell of blood? Did he imagine it as I have imagined it? My mother, weeping, holding me against the clammy warmth of her skin, avoiding the looks of the flag of women she worked for, knowing already that she'd have to leave and try and find work elsewhere, knowing no farmer would hire a servant woman with a newborn. If he wants to learn of my family, he'll have a hard time of it. Two fathers and a mother, who seem as blurry to me as strangers, departing through a snowstorm. I have few clear memories of her. One is the day she left me. Another is when I was young, watching her in the lamplight of a winter night. It's a silent memory, and one, like the others, I can't quite trust. Memories shift like loose snow in a wind, or a corral of ghosts all talking over one another. There is only ever a sense that what is real to me is not real to others, and to share a memory with someone is to risk sullying my belief in what has truly happened. Is the Reverend the person of my memory, or is he another altogether? Did I do that? Or was it another, Magnus or Jon? It's the glaze of ice over the water, too fragile to trust. Did my mother look down at her baby daughter and think, one day I will leave you? Did she look at my scrunched face, hoping I would die? Or did she silently urge me to stick to life like a burr? Perhaps she looked out to the valley, into the mist and stillness, and wondered what she could give me. A lie for a father a head of dark hair, a hay rack to sleep in, a kiss, a stone, so that I might learn to understand the birds and never be lonely. Hannah Kent is the co-founder and deputy editor of the literary journal Kill Your Darlings. Her first novel is Burial Rights. Thank you for joining me, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Hannah, this book is based on a really fascinating historical incident, and I'd like you to tell me how you first came across that and did it strike you as a story or as something that happened like news? I, there's a kind of a, a difference there. And I'd like you to see if you can remember how you first felt when you heard about this. It's a, it's a really good question. I, uh, I first heard the story of Agnes Magnus Dottir 10 years ago when I was 17 years old and living in Iceland as an exchange student. I'd basically decided to go over, overseas for a year after I finished high school one, because I didn't want to choose a university course. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And the other reason is because I'd never seen snow before and Iceland seemed to me very exotic. And so I, I, was, um, I was sent to this very, very small town in the north of Iceland called Sotherkroka. And while I was expecting, you know, to deal with the usual problems of an exchange student, you know, homesickness, a different language and so on, I really wasn't anticipating... I guess, how difficult it would be to fit into a small Icelandic town. You know, I arrived in January when the days were 
almost completely dark. There were no trees. We were on the side of a fjord and a tiny, tiny clutch of houses and a harbour and not much more. And it was almost like the edge of the world. That's what it felt like to me. But beyond this, I really struggled with the idea of being an outsider in this small town. You know, because it was so small, everyone knew one another. And it seemed that even before I'd arrived, everyone knew my name, where I was coming from and where I would be staying. You know, in fact, I remember walking to school one day. I had to attend school again as part of the exchange. I remember walking to school one day in the snow and having a car pull up next to me and slow down and the windows roll down and everyone inside just have a look at me, you know, stick their heads out and have a good gawk because they'd heard about this Australian kid. And so, but no one actually said anything to me. So for the first time in my life, I dealt with this very strange position of being completely conspicuous in a small community, really sticking out, but at the same time being completely socially alienated. And it was during this sort of very strange time for me that I was taken through an area very close to where I was living called Vatsdalod. Um, there, there's a major road which goes around Iceland and this road runs through this extraordinary place where these great big sweeping glacial valleys seem to sort of erupt into hundreds and hundreds of small hills. And it kind of looks man-made almost. I, it's very difficult to describe. And I was completely struck by this section of landscape. And I remember asking my host parents, who I was with at the time, you know, if they were significant for any reason. And they pointed to three small hills that lay quite close to the side of the road. And they told me that that was the site of Iceland's last execution. It was where a woman called Agnes Magnusdottir had been beheaded for the murder of two men. And that was really all they told me at that stage. That was really the first I heard of it, although I later heard a few more details during the rest of my exchange. But I really think that what it wasn't even so much as if as I heard a story that I thought, oh wow, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I think anyone would be curious about a, you know, the promise of some sort of ancient crime that occurred and a woman who died because it's unusual. But what I really felt at that time was something that it was it was strange. It was more irrational. It felt like some kind of kinship or resonance that defied easy explanation. A kinship is probably what I would, would, would come closest to what it was. And it was um, something that just made me deeply, deeply fascinated and curious about Agnes. It wasn't even so much the story, you know. I wanted to know who this woman was. And it's only really now, looking back and thinking about this time when I first heard the story, that I think I recognise in that curiosity... You know, I think I, I think sometimes we hear certain stories and because of whatever we're going through in our own lives, they hold, I guess, extra importance or extra value for us. And I'm certain that because at that very time I was experiencing, you know, conspicuity and social alienation and being an outsider in a similar sort of small Icelandic community that she really appealed to me. I think I saw something of my own life in her story as sort of as strange as that sounds. Not to sort of equate, you know, a homesick you know, 17-year-old and a woman condemned to death. But there was something in that, and I'm still trying to put my finger on it. So it wasn't really news. It wasn't even a story. It was just a, a weird curiosity and a feeling of affinity. Well, there are a few parallels in your stories in that she stayed with a, a family, and, mm. and so were you. I'd like you to talk about your subsequent research and diving deeper into this story because... Uh, and creating when you started to think well I want to write a book about this because mm -hmm. the way you crafted the book is really interesting it's a fascinating uh, set of contra contrasting stories so talk about the the research you did 
Gosh, the research. I don't think I realised when I decided to write this book how much research it would, you know, necessitate. And it was by the time that I realised how much and how long it was going to take me, it was sort of too late to turn back. I um, I basically spent two years researching this book full time. Um, originally, to start with, I did try and find out as much as I could about Agnes, but I found it a real challenge because I was in a South Australia and there wasn't a great deal of, you know, Icelandic resources there. So I spent a lot of time researching, I guess, the setting of the novel. I was a huge amount of time actually reading everything I could get my hands on about early life, uh, life in early 19th century Iceland. You know, that, and that was everything from reading the works of Haldor Laxness, you know, one of their most wonderful fiction writers, to their poetry, to academic articles on everything from, you know, smallpox to methods of sheep grazing to recipes on how to make blood sausage. You know, if it was about Iceland, I read it. Um, and then probably about 18 months in, I received funding um, from my university. I was doing a PhD at the time, uh, and this was the subject. I received funding to go to Iceland to do archival research, and it was there in the National Archives that I really started to get my hands on those primary sources that I needed. You know, And then I was looking through. It was a lot of microfiche, but it was um, images of ministerial books and parish records and this beautiful... Um, I love this word. It's called solnaregistur. And it's a type of sort of census, I suppose, but the literal translation is the register of souls. And it was when the priest would go around from farm to farm in the wintertime and write down who was living there, their ages, their relation to the head of the family. And then beautifully, it had a little line on how they behaved themselves and a little brief record of how literate they were. And so they were a wonderful source to finally get because as soon as I could find Agnes in these sources, I, you know, I had a little priest's note about her behaviour and, you know, saying that she was incredibly intelligent and that she had a huge sort of literacy ability for someone, you know, in her position. So that was extraordinary. And by that stage, you know, because I had done so much research into early 19th century Iceland, these little facts were kind of immediately contextualised. And they, um, they, I guess they gave me a lot of sort of, they really triggered my imagination in a way that I wasn't expecting. It it shows on the page, and I one of the things I think that's interesting that that you mentioned is Agnes's literacy. Lit Iceland was very literate during this time, which seems very unusual. And I, I'm wondering too, you were reading this in Icelandic. You learned the language. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I ended up learning Icelandic when I was there as an exchange student. Mm -hmm. um, probably, you know. I, I, w I wouldn't say necessarily like an Icelander. I make a lot of grammatical errors, but I wasn't speaking English, put it that way, by the time I left. Um, of course, my Icelandic kind of dropped off a bit when I went back to South Australia because, again, there's not very many Icelanders around. Um, but it, I couldn't have written this book had I not had that at least a basic understanding of the language because I think 98% of the sources I needed to read were in Icelandic and required translation. And that was often a very laborious and, and time-consuming thing to do, but necessary. And I'm glad, I'm glad I did it. Um, it's, uh, it was extraordinary, really. I did have some assistance um, towards the end. There was one particular book I found which was really, really useful called Engin Mawundanlita, which means no one may look away. Um, and it had a lot of information about the executions, particularly. And this book was given to me through, a, oh, it's a very long story, I can't get into it, by a dairy farmer in the middle of nowhere, four hours away from the closest sort of store. Um, I was staying at this kind of remote place in the northern peninsula in Iceland and had sort of been looking for this book. And 
basically through a, theories, through a series of unfortunate circumstances, couldn't get my hands on a copy. And the dairy farmer who was running the cabin where I was staying one night knocked on my door and gave me a copy of this book, uh, you know, which I couldn't believe. And then, um, and then we sort of developed a friendship. And every night after he'd finished the cows, he uh, milking the cows, he would. Um, dropped by my by cabin where I was staying and helped me translate with a thermos of coffee of coffee and a, and a you know a whole lot of cinnamon rolls so he helped me translate some of it but um but you know the early days it was just a lot of slow going one of the things i think that's interesting about this book is the prose you face a lot of like really um interesting word choices you have to choose words that are appropriate to the historical mm-hmm. time appropriate to the place, mm-hmm. appropriate to the character, appropriate to the character's station in the society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like you to talk about like just gathering all those words and you've done all this research. Mm. Uh, have you been writing the book yet or are you just kind of like uh, a gathering cloud waiting to <laughs> rain a, a very sleety storm upon the pages? Before I uh, before I, I received the funding to go to Iceland and find a lot of the facts that I really needed to write the book, I had been writing. A lot of it was just kind of pure speculation um, without necessarily, you know, based on the general Icelandic research into 19th century Iceland that I had been doing, but not specific to Agnes. Um, so that was about 50,000 words of that in various states of sort of quality um, and, and, you know, redrafting. Um, but by the time that I came back from that trip in Iceland, I realised that I needed to start from the beginning. So while I had, I guess, been thinking a great deal about the story and working on certain characters' voice, some of the dialogue, I really did start again from, from I guess, page one. In terms of in terms of developing, you know, the dialogue and the word choice, I did find it very difficult early on. I'd always known that Agnes as a character... Because this is in her internal world, there's the sections in first person where she's really just talking to herself. I always knew that she was a very literate character. I knew she was a poet. So I decided quite early on that she would speak in this very lyrical, metaphorical way. Except one thing I, I quickly realised was that I was incredibly limited in the sort of metaphors I could use. I couldn't even you know, talk about trees because there were no trees in Iceland. I was sort of reduced to the basic you know, elements. There was the snow, there was the water, there was the mountains and wind and rocks and that was kind of it and I kept on having to sort of scratch out these other metaphors that I'd come up with and other images because they were completely anachronistic or just inaccurate. In terms of developing um, sort of the, the tone of voice for certain other characters I drew a lot from the, the research that I and the facts that I did find. I discovered some letters for instance that were written by the district commissioner Björn Blunder and I used his mode of address that he had this particular tone in the letters in the way he also interacted with the other characters. But it all actually came about quite organically, certainly Agnes's voice. I think that probably the person I struggled most with and who underwent the most amount of changes in terms of the language that she uses was Margaret, the farmer's wife. She um, she was a lot more bitter when we started out. She hated her children more, but, um, you know, we had to soften her up a little bit. I, I really like the... Uh the structure going back and forth between the first and third person, and that's kind of a daring decision. When did you uh, decide that you had to do that? I mean, did you ever think about writing Agnes's uh, portions in the third person? No, I didn't. Um, This was an Australian publisher said to me recently that I got away with it because he said, you know, this doesn't often work. And that's I, true. Yeah, and I know that now. At the time, I didn't. I um, I always knew that I wanted these. I wanted a first person. I wanted Agnes's voice there. But I thought that her style of sort of speaking 
was because of its because of its lyricism and because it's so image heavy I thought that would just be a real drag for the reader to kind of have to continuously read that through the length of a novel so I thought I'd sort of give him a little rest in between with third person like this you can tell how naive I was and how you know how the fact that I'd never written a novel as well so I think I just kind of I, I really do think I got away with it but it was the third person was what came second that to me was sort of more the bricks and mortar of the story whereas the first person originally that was what I was excited about and those those were the first sections that I was writing when I was started to get basically when I decided to write a novel Agnes's voice always came first but it's um I never I never considered writing hers in third even after I'd finished the first draft I did have this horrible sort of week where I had a bit of a crisis and I decided that I would write it all in second person, which it was hilarious because, of course, I changed a whole bunch of sections into second person and then realised what a huge error I'd made and quickly turned it back. But, I mean, that's that was part of the process of learning how to write a book as well. You know, you walk down some dead ends just to find your way back again. Uh, I think one of the things, this has a book has a, a pretty big cast of characters. Mm. You do a great job and they all have for those of us who speak only English, they have pretty peculiar names. Mm. Uh, You do a great job of making them all crystal clear really quick. We really understand all of them. And I'd like you to talk about how you did that. Did did that just happen, or did you have to find yourself uh, making biographies for them out of the book? I... um I always knew that I would use as many Icelandic words as once again I could get away with. Um, one because I really, from I really wanted to, to make this an Icelandic novel, you know, a novel set in Iceland, not some sort of generic Scandinavian sort of northern country. I really wanted to sort of, I guess, honour um, the traditions, such as the naming practices that I came across when I was living there. Um, but and of course, you know, after having you know lived there for one year and then also returned many times, I didn't necessarily consider these names very unusual. I just wrote them as I found them in the historical records or I I changed a few of them because you know there were quite a few characters who the historical counterparts shared the same name but I didn't really give it a great deal of thought the I think the other reason I didn't really worry too much about it is because this novel was originally written as a PhD thesis I was writing it for a qualification um, not necessarily for publication and it was only really when once I got an agent and once I knew that the book was possibly going to be picked up by a publisher that I had to actually return to the idea of maybe anglicising some of the names or making it easier. And that was done to a certain extent. The some certain Icelandic um, the certain Icelandic characters in their alphabet have been turned, for instance, you know, the thorn has been turned into a TH because that's how we would pronounce it. But the names of the characters, I mean, they were sort of there, that's how they were in the first draft. I, I was kind of assisted by the fact that people do have these very complicated names in Iceland, but they also often have nicknames. And so, for instance, the priest's name, his, uh, his real name was Thorvarður, which is, you know, quite a complicated name to say. But there's a nickname for any n- sort of masculine name beginning in Thor, which is Toti, which of course is 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 so much easier to say, but also I thought would really reflect, I guess, a kind of patronising attitude that other people might have towards him because he's so young by simply, you know, calling him Reverend Toti rather than Reverend Thorvalder. So, no, I didn't really... Um, I think I've gotten away with it, and I'm glad it works in the novel because that was something I was quite anxious about. And the first draft also had a list of characters which was eventually not included. So um, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that it works because I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really doing that consciously. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting is just the the historical backdrop of Iceland because um, in the early 
19th century, the murders were very rare. And mm. I, I mean, this the whole uh, backstory to this is has a really nice, uh, I guess, foreign feel. It's it is foreign, <laughs> but you you make it clear to us. Yet it gives it a nice kind of a prickly um, and interesting texture, I guess. Oh, excellent! I, I'm really pleased to hear that. I mean, again, this was a this was a case of writing it as I saw it and as I came to understand Icelandic history through my research. You know, I I, I mean, crime is still incredibly rare in Iceland, and when. Actually, when I was over in Iceland researching this book for six weeks, there was a murder in the capital city in Reykjavik, and people were horrified by it. And I mean, where I'm from, and I'm certainly here in the US, I know that murders occur all the time, and they might get a mention on the news, but they certainly don't run, the same case won't run in the news for a whole week, which is what happened in Iceland. You know, they would revisit the case again and again, and it is so rare. And I mean, that was... um, it was impossible to write this book without, I guess, addressing the way in which a heinous crime like this would have this evil effect throughout the community. It has such a huge ripple effect. Everyone is affected by it because there's so few people, you know, and it makes people question, I guess, the communities that they love and are a part of. And I want, I'm very fascinated in these small, isolated rural townships, um, even though you probably couldn't even call the, you know, this area a township. There were no public buildings. This is just basically a group of people living together. One of the things I think that's really interesting about this book is the way the story is told, your Mm -hmm. sense of storytelling, because we have Agnes telling her story in the first person, we get a lot of the story in the third person, and the two stories kind of catch up and loop around one another. So I'd like you to Mm -hmm. talk about your sense of how to tell this story, especially since it's in a land where the land of the sagas. Mm, Yes. I um, The sagas are wonderful reading, and I did read a lot of them in preparation, I guess, for just acquainting myself with this particular country and its history, particularly its literary history and heartbeat, because the, the sagas have this sort of ongoing resonance um, in, in the cultural life there. In terms of um, how I would juxtapose, or I guess how I would tell the story through this particular narrative structure, it, for me, it all came down to Agnes's ambiguity, which I think was probably my original and primary goal in writing this book. When I started doing some early research into the case and the crime of which she was convicted, I was really struck by two things. One was that she was largely absent from so many records of this particular event. And if she was there, she was often just sort of named. There was no sort of contextual information about where she had come from. She was just kind of absent. She wasn't there. And the second reason is because when I did find a rare source that would talk extensively about her, she was almost without exception spoken of in these really sort of unequivocal terms. She was always described as, you know, this, the kind of vocabulary used to describe her character was always kind of employed words like monstrous or she was likened to, a, a you know, a, as if she had plotted this murder or organised it as a kind of witchcraft or that she was a spider weaving a web, weaving the fates of these poor men together. And I, um, and while I sort of understood why that might be so, I was really frustrated at the way in which she was never allowed any complexity. There was never a mention of her early life and this was something that I was always very fascinated with because I think as much as some people might, I think it's very rare, but some people might have sort of a inherent 
um, you know, predilection to bad behaviour or evil acts as, you know, they might have called it back then, I really do think that we're, our behaviour is much more shaped by external circumstances, you know, social, cultural, political forces, what our childhood has been like, what things have we been up against in the past, and I couldn't find any information about this. And so writing this book, I really wanted to, that's one of the reasons I went to Iceland, to find out what had happened you know, to her outside of the immediate context of crime. What had her life been like? What sort of woman was she? And in writing this book, what I wanted to do was reflect what I found in those sources, which is her inherent ambiguity and there in her humanity. You know, no one of us, I think, is entirely good or entirely evil. And yet this was how she was being presented. And I really thought that by using first-person sections of her talking, well not talking, but really reflecting quite intimately on what has happened to her. And then also the third person where she's engaging in dialogue and she's telling her story to the priest and also the family members that she's been billeted with. I could, I guess, explore that ambiguity. I could look and create a sense of unreliability. You know, there she is talking to the priest, telling telling him what happened to her when she was a young girl. But then you have a section where she's reflecting about what she tells him or what she will tell him next time. And there's an element you perhaps, I hope, gain a sense that she is already, this is calculated, you know, she's very conscious of what she is saying to other people. But in that unreliability, I hope to not necessarily convey, you know, that doesn't come from a place of monstrosity. It comes from the fact that she has learned in quite early in her life that she can't be honest. She can't be entirely, you know, trusting of other people. And so with, the, I guess, the various kind of versions of stories that also come out and the fact that there are some things that you kind of have to, have to acknowledge are true, there's also a sense that she is presenting herself in a way that is possibly slightly manipulative as well. And, and in that, I hope to sort of explore that ambiguity, the fact that she is incredibly complex and, yes, she has many flaws. And, yes, and, you know, we all lie sometimes to, to you know, to get something or to sort of appear better to people. But, uh, you know, I ho- that's where I hope to find it. That's where I wanted to locate it in between, I guess, the seams of these different forms of narration. I think that one of the things that I also like is all the your other cast of characters. And the character you said you had difficulty with, Mar- Margret, mm. I thought she was wonderful. Oh, she was good. very, very entertaining <laughs> and really kind of... Uh, she was, uh, I think, uh, almost as complicated as Agnes. And I, mm. I like that feeling of these characters who kind of are indecisive about who mm. they are even. Oh, I love Margaret too. She remains one of my favorite characters. And I had a lot of fun with her. I, she was one of the, when I mentioned those early 50,000 words that I wrote before, I really managed to get to Iceland and get into sort of the nitty gritty details of what happened in Agnes's life. A lot of the scenes I had written were involving Agnes and this woman who was sort of forced to host her with her family. And um, I think she she probably changed the most out of any character, and that's probably because while I always had a very strong sense of Agnes, she was always sort of the other the other player. She was only really there in those early scenes so Agnes could be presented in her sort of wonderful multi multi dimensionality. Um, so so she she evolved a great deal, but she remains one of my favourite characters for that exact reason. And this is something that I'm very you know interested in generally. I think in terms of writing, I feel that. People, people aren't types, you know, and I think Margaret is one of those people who defies a lot of stereotypes and expectations, and she surprises herself, and I think it's really important that characters are able to do that. And, um, you know, she grows because she allows herself to 
to change and she allows herself to surprise herself and act in ways that she perhaps earlier wouldn't have anticipated she would act. Now, the way this novel works is that having been convicted of the crimes, Agnes is sent to live with this family uh, while she's awaiting her execution. And one of the things I like about this book is the presence of absence. Mm. And one of the most present but absent characters is Natan. Mm. So I'd like you to talk about him and creating him, uh, somebody who's not really there, but he's very much there. Yes, Natan was an interesting one. Someone recently asked me um, who was the most difficult character to write, and it was certainly Natan. And that was mainly because I had, one, I had always had a great deal of information about him because he was quite a legendary figure in his own time. Um, you know, he was, he was very complex. He was someone who was allowed complexity and ambiguity. He was a, he was a very gifted healer and doctor, and yet he had, was also kind of a criminal. He'd been whipped for thievery, and he certainly was associated and affiliated with thieves. He was quite unscrupulous. He was a, an amazing poet and would write these sort of wonderful poems which still exist and are taught today to you know his mistress. And yet he was also womanizing at the same time and had a whole bunch of illegitimate children. And so I wanted to capture, you know, I guess the nature of this man who by all accounts wasn't particularly attractive but was so charming. And, you know, but I guess I, was, I really struggled with that because one, when the book starts, he's already dead. You know, he's been killed. Two, we only really hear from him, you know, in terms of little snippets from other characters as they reflect on Natan. We only really see him through Agnes's eyes. And that was difficult for me because she, I think, probably has the most conflicted memory of him because there was a time when, you know, she was basically in love with him, but also a time when she, you know, but that time has passed and now she's in a position where, one, she's probably grieving his death, but two... She probably feels completely conflicted about what has gone before. I'm trying to talk about this without giving away any spoilers. Um, and so that was something I really struggled. And I, to write probably to the last rewrites, I was try, I was tinkering with the way in which the reader might come to understand Nathan. Um but, but yes, he is, in many ways, he makes his presence known through his absence. And that was something that required a, a great deal of tinkering. I'm very interested in him. I find him fascinating. I wish in many ways that I was allowed to explore him more deeply, but... The, you know, the way the book is structured, that was largely an impossibility. Uh, I like the sense of pacing in this book. It's mm. it's very quick read. Mm. And I think that has to do with this kind of the contrasting going back between the, the different uh, points of view. Yes. I'd like you to talk about creating the tension and keeping us going when to a certain degree we think at least we know what's going mm. to happen. We know what what's what. Yes. Again, that was something that that ended up was created fairly organically and it was just, I wrote it in that way and sort of developed the pace very much on the basis of, you know, Ag Agnes is a woman who is, you know, completely ostracized by this community. She's hated and feared by everyone that she's surrounded by. And yet here she is billeted with a family. Of course, she's not going to start talking to them off, you know, day one, it's going to develop time. So the the rate at which I suppose the story picks up pace is is kind of in in a direct parallel with her, I guess, developing a sense of trust or at least companionship, particularly with the priest. So that was kind of how I measured it and that's how I wrote it. I was sort of just asking myself, would she be willing to divulge this amount of information at this stage? And um, and then, you know, eventually when she starts talking to Margaret a great more, that was sort of based on, I guess, me thinking, when would Agnes feel prepared to to tell her this story? And if so, would she tell her all of it or would she just tell it in a particular way? It was basically through a sense of um, 
logic, I suppose. And, and I, I love the the two girl children there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I like the sisters too. They're all funny. They, um, I, I, when I couldn't find a great deal of information about characters, I would use something in my research to, I guess, suggest characterization. And for them, their characters came largely from a census record, one of these Solna registers, where the two sisters were listed as living with their, you know, their parents and so on, and their full names. The, fa- the names are the same as what I found in the census, and their ages were 21 and 20. And then, as I mentioned, they have those little lines reflecting their behaviour that the priest had sort of um, written down. And their elder sister, who was 21, Steinvor, she had the priest had discu- basically described her as being you know pretty good at reading and you know fairly fairly happy kid and you know she was she was good she was average yeah fine no problems but the younger sister Sigalug or Loga she is in the book she, the priest had basically written this girl is incredibly brilliant and there was one word describing her her behavior I think it was which was Fraubeit which I guess our modern equivalent would be you know, as if a priest had written down in a sense, it's awesome. It just seems so bizarre and it really stuck out at me. And I thought, well, there's an interesting dynamic. You've got an elder sister who is, you know, okay, maybe she's not great. Maybe she doesn't get along with people, but the younger sister, you know, the priest loves. And I have a younger sister and I know how these sibling rivalries and these sibling relationships can work. And so that was really where their characters came from, this this, um, discrepancy in that original census record. You know, there's a, one of the things I think that you do really well is create a fictional work with mm. what is clearly a lot of nonfiction in it. Mm. I mean, we have the the letters are translated; those are pretty much as they are. Yes. I, am I correct on that? You've got characters who are created out of census records. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you feel any, I guess, trepidation at trying to at writing? fiction about real people? Of course, I did, yeah. I was actually, I was really nervous about the whole enterprise, particularly as, a, again, an outsider, writing about a country and a history that's not my own. And really, I thought that, I guess, to to make sure that it was ethical as much as this can be, and I still think it can be a bit of a, you know, a tricky situation, I thought that's that's why I needed to do my research. That's why I need to commit and make sure that I know as as to the to the best of my abilities what, I, what it is that I'm writing about. Um, my process was actually one I borrowed off uh, Margaret Atwoods that she describes in in an essay that was published in Curious Pursuits, a collection of her essays, uh, and it's her, her approach to writing the wonderful novel Alias Grace. And in it she describes how she, it was a research-led creative practice, as I guess an academic might call it, whereby once you could establish a fact that could be corroborated or you just couldn't get around the fact that this is what happened, you you had to honour it. You couldn't I guess, change it. And that's what I did. Uh, Me too. Whenever I found anything that I knew was a fact, I stuck to it in the novel. And then whenever you come across maybe a few different accounts which are slightly contradictory, you would use your more general or broader research into that time to, I guess, choose the most likely scenario or choose the most likely record or source. And it was only in the outright gaps where you really felt free to invent. And I came across this quite early on once I decided to do this project and I thought that would work perfectly for me. And that's that's exactly what I did. So whenever I did whenever I was aware of myself writing fiction, I um or whenever I was aware of a gap I should probably say I felt quite comfortable writing fiction because I knew that I had done my best to try and, and fi- fill that with research. And even still, the fiction that I did create was very much informed by that 
broader research. I like to say that everything is kind of rooted to research, you know. It might be a completely fictional branch or tree, but down somewhere down in the earth, I can probably pick anything in the novel and I can tell you what source inspired it. One of the things I think that this novel does, and is really important to it, is the landscape and under in which all this unfolds. You do a great job of creating that without beating us over the head with it. <laughs> and that's a tough a balance to mm. strike. The landscape was really important to me, um, almost as much as capturing Agnes's voice. And that was because uh, the landscape in Iceland is what caused me to fall in love with that country when I lived there. It's something that to this day I feel homesick for, which is kind of strange as an Australian, but it's true. And I never really knew before I lived in Iceland the way in which someone can have a, a spiritual connection to land and to landscape and the natural world. And that's, but that's exactly what I felt when I lived there. I, um, it, it was, it kind of defies easy articulation, um, but I can only really describe it as a, as a grip on my heart, you know. And this was something that I wanted to try. I think anyone who has been to Iceland will understand that one of the reasons it is so memorable and striking is largely because of its ineffability. It is so difficult to articulate. It is so different and so striking that you kind of struggle for words. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write this novel as well was to see whether I couldn't distill some of that ineffable, amazing quality into, into prose, into, you know, language. And so it was really kind of a personal exercise for me. But it's something that I, again, in making this a very much an Icelandic novel, I knew I had to put in there. The, the landscape intrudes upon your life in a way it doesn't in other countries in Iceland. And um, again, to make this an Icelandic novel, I needed to make, make sure that it had that same presence. Has this novel been tri translated into Icelandic? And I'm wondering, when you talk about Icelandic novels, is, do the kind of books that people in Iceland are reading right now, do they read historical murder mysteries about Iceland? I'm not sure. I hope they will. Um, the book will be translated into Icelandic. I'm not sure when it will come out, probably next year sometime, but I do know that it's available there in English at the moment, and I, a lot of Icelanders will read novels in English. Um, and I've started to get some feedback, and people people seem to be really enjoying it. So I'm very grateful for that, because of course I'm con constantly anxious that they'll hate it. Um, but so far, no, the opposite seems to be true. So I suppose we'll, we'll wait and see whether whether they're interested in it. But so far, I've certainly had a few emails and letters from people who have read it. And um, in fact, I had got an email, gosh, three or four days ago from the great great granddaughter, I believe it is of the murdered man, Natan, who um, who told me that she was going to read the book and was really interested in the story. So that was that was pretty cool. That was really cool. You know, one of the things, too, that I think you do well in this book is to create a landscape and a life and a sense of perception that has a bit of, you know, magic and surrealism mm. and the supernatural mm -hmm. around the edges. And this is, of course to a degree, just reflects the character's understanding of the world. And I think that's an interesting way to approach that. It's true. It's there because it was the way in which these, I guess, the historical counterparts and these characters would have seen the world. And in fact, you know, dreams are something that are 
that are in the novel and they're discussed by the characters. And I didn't make up a single dream that is in the novel. They were all there in local histories and all quite well known as dreams these people had and spoke about. And so a lot of what I was doing was merely, I guess, reproducing that that history on, on a page, um, which is kind of extraordinary. And I feel like I have to say that. So I was like, no, 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 you know, I didn't, I didn't use the dream, you know, I guess um, the convention that that was there. That's what happened. But I mean, this idea that you know, on the periphery, there is this kind of supernatural life going on, or that we are we are living this sort of parallel existence alongside things that we cannot rationally explain. That's something that very much interests me as well. Yes, it is certainly part of the Icelandic psyche, um, and I needed to make sure that that was again present in the novel to make this an Icelandic book. But it's something I'm really deeply interested um, by folklore and by superstition. And it's actually something that I didn't really feel I could pursue as much as I wanted to in this book. So my next book is actually focused much more strongly on superstition particularly. So I'm really looking forward to writing that one. Well, tell can what can you tell us any more about it? Well, my Australian publisher has has forbidden me from telling too much, but she's not here, so yes, I can. Um, my next book will be set in Ireland, actually. You know, another country of superstition, um, in the south, in County Kerry, uh, around the time of the 1820s, so pre-famine, and it will again probably look at um, women. Uh, I actually encountered a really interesting newspaper article when I was researching burial rites and I uh, I cut it out and I sort of kept it to the side because it had no relevance with this book but I thought what a fascinating story. So without saying too much I can say that you know I think it's the story of three women and a crime that they're all sort of involved in and it's a, a crime motivated by to a large extent superstition but the book largely will focus on the way in which those who are disempowered can gain some kind of agency over their own lives by superstitious belief but also subordinate other people so that's sort of what I'll be that's what I'm hoping to explore well I'll be looking forward to that oh good (laughs) I've been speaking with Hannah Kent her new novel is Burial Rights thank you for joining me Hannah thank you so much for having me You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.